0: Born from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world.
1: This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. And we get back to Gilgit, and the compound is locked. <laughs> and there's a note on the door that said, Stuff's getting hot. You should get out. Sorry so I think you're exactly right that these disruptive events create new space, and I would like to think that we can take advantage of that to make that new space a positive.
0: Greetings and welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is a place for influential athletes, adventurers, and activists to share their journeys, their inspiration, and deconstruct how they're adding more meaningful value to the world through their adventures. This is episode two with Paul Charlton. A native of Washington State, Paul's interest in the mountains of the world led to his first visit to Pakistan in 2001. Since that time, his interest in the country has blossomed, both into international development and humanitarian relief. He started with a health education project funded by the American Alpine Club to then managing a large disaster relief program for Save the Children after the devastating earthquake of 2005. In this episode, we learn how he helped establish a Pakistani NGO, Care, which focuses on safety training for mountaineering and expedition porters. Paul's experiences in Pakistan fostered a particular interest in global health activities in conflict-affected settings. He has found that health is a powerful tool for promoting peace and lens for examining the detrimental effects of conflict. Motivated by these discoveries, He completed a master's degree in conflict resolution from Georgetown University, then became a physician at the Dartmouth School of Medicine and is now completing his residency in emergency medicine at the University of Washington. His future aims are to work as a physician and to engage actively on the political dimensions of health. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Paul Charlton welcome to the uh, camper episodes you've heard a little bit about Paul it's it's great to see him and and drive up here to Seattle to catch up Paul and I I guess have known each other since oh boy I mean around 2000 2000 yeah you're 2000 yeah. working together uh, for the Park Service on Rainier as, as climbing Rangers and uh, our paths and different ways have led through expeditions in the mountains and doing some philanthropy work abroad and and now great to catch up and before sitting down to record it was cool to chat about projects ahead but um, I'd love people to get a little insight of of your journey Paul and and your background and I guess uh, the f- the first thing that's often intriguing or people are curious about is is how a, a young man from Eastern Washington ends up in Pakistan.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, so that that was a little bit unex- unexpected for me as well. I grew up in Ellensburg, so in the middle part of Washington State, uh, more of a you know ranching and farming community. And for whatever reason, there there there's this group of uh, pretty active. Older mountaineers that had that had come to live in Ellensburg, and when I was uh, towards the end of high school, I actually knew one of their one of their daughters. Uh, knew that her father uh, was a climber and had been on some of those early American like nationally funded expeditions, and one day had, had gone up to him and said, uh, you know, kind of interested in. Learning a little bit more about this climbing thing, which would be willing to teach me.
0: How old were you? Uh,
1: I think I was about sixteen, seventeen yeah. at that point. I, I figured it'd be like a like a one day <laughs> learn everything you need to know about climbing sort of deal but it ended up being a great friendship one of the the inspiring things about it had been just that this was a it was a very interesting group of folks uh, that you know they'd been climbing in uh, in the Karakoram and the Himalayas uh, a lot of those uh, expeditions in the 60s and the 70s Why don't you feel to throw out some names cuz some of our audience may uh, know yeah, who you're sure. about sure so fred dunham fred stanley uh, bill sumner mm-hmm. tom Hornbein. A lot of that that group that had been pretty active in the in the '70s. So I, you know, I was sixteen, seventeen. They were in their fifties, mm-hmm. and it was great. You know, really opened up a, just a totally different world to me. Um, they, of course, there were a lot of picture books uh, that <laughs> yeah. had been recording those early expeditions, and one of the ones that had, that had stood out to me was Galen Rowell's book uh, in the throne. I think it was in the throne room of the Mountain Gods, which was about the nineteen seventy five K two expedition. Right, and I remember seeing those pictures and it just thought, you know, thought it was a very entrancing story, along with just, just a spectacular uh, part of the world. So I think that that probably planted the seed for Pakistan being a place that I'd be interested to visit. I later did take some time and travel in different parts of South Asia. Uh, took some time before going to college to do that.
0: Yeah, and, and tell me a little bit about your decision to do that, because that's... Not- not what everybody does when they're when they're done with college. So, yeah.
1: what,
0: what made you decide that that was a good idea for
1: you? Yeah. Well, so I, I started working on farms uh, when I was twelve. Uh, so I had my own money uh, from working working yeah. on uh, on farms all those years, and actually I had a girlfriend uh, at the end of high school. That one day I just, yeah, you know, I was going to go to uh, going to go to college in New England. And I was feeling a little bit burnt out, and uh, I said, would you be interested in going to New Zealand uh, with me for mm-hmm. a year, and figuring that the answer was going to be no. But to my surprise, she said, sure. So I uh, actually ended up deferring where I was going to go to college, and then uh, ended up deferring for another year. So I took two years off, to sort of hitchhiked around uh, New Zealand, Australia, I was doing some work along the way. You are like 18 or 17 yeah. at this time. Yeah. 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 Um, and then ended up uh, being in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and you know, a lot of it was pretty unexpected path for me I mean I did not grow up in a family that did stuff like that but it did definitely open my eyes to to there being just you know different different ways of of living in the world India India was pretty uh, thought-provoking for me because I sort of ended up in India and that that was definitely it was a challenging place I mean it was exposure to multiple different religions uh, just a really different lifestyle Um, and I remember after coming back to the US after that I did I was intellectually pretty curious about South yeah. Asia, um, made an effort to learn a lot more about the, the politics and the history um, as well as the the language stuff uh, from South Asia. So I later went back to India and I studied Hindi uh, mm-hmm. formerly at a language school in northern India. And then in early 2001 went over to to Pakistan. Uh, so this was sort of a... Reconnaissance trip for doing a, an expedition in the far north of the country. So,
0: adventuring and kind of expedition mountaineering
1: was mountaineering. becoming a
0: part of your life at this time, too. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So, I was,
1: was doing more with climbing. And, you know, it's just it's a stunning part of the world, as, you know, all of your listeners know. I mean, it's yeah. pretty amazing mountains, really interesting cultures, uh, just kind of a whole package that's, uh, that's a pretty rewarding place, uh, but also very thought provoking. So, uh, so, I'd studied Hindi in northern India and then um, Urdu, which is the Sort of main trade language for Pakistan is in its spoken form is not all that different from Hindi. Um, you know, it draws from a different religious background and cultural background. So they have different, they do have different vocabulary and different religious words. But uh, in, you know, in a spoken, in a spoken way, it's it's not too hard to make the transition, mm-hmm. um, even though the the written script is quite different. Right. So had gone over with some, uh, had gone over to to northern Pakistan, had some. F- friends there and through those friends got linked in with kind of their Pakistani community. And uh, it was fantastic. You know, uh, what what I hear people say is uh, foreigners either Really love Pakistan, or they really hate it, and I happen to be in the category that uh, that just found it such a fascinating and rewarding place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it that it definitely it caught me.
0: But you were apprehensive before, right? I, I mean, I imagine some of the stories from Dunham and things like that too, with their ex- experience with the expedition and the porters may have.
1: Skewed you a little in a little way, or biased you yeah. on your first trip there. That, right? that's, that is certainly correct. Uh, yeah. the, I, I will say that they did not have the best of experiences <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the seventies. I, I think, as 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 you may know, that that was a time where there were a lot of expeditions coming in, and there were there were big problems with porters yeah. uh, working on the Baltoro Glacier. Uh, you know, it, 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 due to a number of factors, but it was it was definitely a. I mean, to be honest, it was a labor relations nightmare uh, where the. Uh, the Balti porters were not super happy with the situation, but they also had an opportunity to exploit their leverage. And right. I think it ended up being kind of a lose-lose situation right. uh, for those expeditions that were coming. It left a lot of hard feelings about how the expeditions felt treated by the Balti porters and the Sirdars and the uh, the Pakistani liaison officials. Right. Um, Pakistan is not the easiest place to to visit or to travel. Uh, and I think that those early expeditions really brought out those challenges.
0: Let's let's move on and talk a little bit about uh, surprises and, you know, kind of breaking through some of those preconceived notions of the people and the culture. And yeah, the one story that, you know, I'll reference to maybe if you can expand upon is, is the one story you, uh, I've heard before when you first met uh Khalil and we're out walking with him and he was describing why his daughter wasn't going to go to school.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is a good friend, Ibrahim Khalil. Uh, he so he's you know roughly my age. I think at that point he had I think his second kid was just born. So I would have been in my early 20s at that point. And you had met him through like friends of he friends. He was like he was friends of friends, yeah. yeah. So he's a Balti guy, he's from the Houche Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, super strong, you know, just uh, incredible nat- natural athlete uh, who works outside all the time. And he uh, when I first met him, he said, you know, I'm not, his oldest child is a, is a girl, Shazi, and, and he said, you know, I'm not planning on uh, really sending Shazi to school. And I was curious because this sort of fed into the narrative that I was, had heard about Pakistan, of it not being the most forward place and so forth. Um, and so I, I wanted to get a better understanding of why that was. And he, he said, uh, you know, what, I actually, I think it's great if uh, if girls and women are studying, I don't have any problem with that. The issue is that it's just too dangerous. Uh, we we had our our village uh, actually got hit by a, a glacial dam outburst flood that wiped away half the village and so now the school is not located near where we are living and it's just temporary housing and so the walk is just too far and she's got such little legs uh, that with the rock fall coming down, there, I just don't think it's safe. And I gotta say, I was I was pretty skeptical uh that, that, that was that, that was a legitimate reason. And then a couple of days later we actually were walking from Conde up to Huche, which is sort of the upper reaches of the, the Huche Valley. This is eastern Baltistan. And uh, we were walking along the road. This is just the the regular road. And uh, we hear this little tink, tink tink tink, and this like really, this small pebble just bounces across the road, and Halil was like, "Stop! <laughs> this could be dangerous." And I was like, "Oh, come on!" Yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't buy it at all, and and he's like, "No, no, 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 no! We're not we're not going forward right now." And so we just stood there, and at this silence. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing, and then a couple minutes later. Dink, 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 dink. One more, and this one—it's like maybe the size of a golf ball. Yeah. Uh, nothing else coming, and he and and Khalil is like, all right, I think we better turn back, and and I was like, Khalil, you're not, you got to be kidding me here. Like, there's there's nothing going on, and so we stood again. Two minutes later, dink, 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 and then, dink, 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 and then and then it's like two golf balls, then three golf balls, and then there's a little baseball, and then there's <laughs> a softball, and then there's just this boom. And we look up, and the whole uh, slope, probably, it was probably 2,000, 2,500 feet above us, right. just let loose. And at that point, the rocks were coming down in front of us, they're coming down behind us, uh, and there's no there's no protection. Uh, it's just this big, you know, 3,000, 4,000 foot rock slope above us, and he took off running straight uphill to try to get underneath this li- little bit of a Lynch. rock outcrop, yeah. and I was pretty fit at that point, and I took off running behind him as fast as I could, and I made it, I bet I made it 100 feet, and at that point was just totally spent, and had that feeling of you know full adrenaline when there's just... No more that I can push, my body just froze, and I and I looked up, and there is this there's this house size rock that is just flopping and flopping straight for us. <laughs> and I remember, you know, just looking up, and there's there's like there's nothing else I can do. I can't move. Yeah. I want to move. My legs aren't working. I have nowhere to go, and I, and just that feeling of this is out of my control. Yeah. And and I watch, and it and it bounces and it bounces. And then it bounces probably 30 feet to the side of us and then over us and then smashes into the creek, the river bottom below us, and then actually a little bit up the other side. Um, and after a couple minutes, the rest of the rock fall just stops. It all, it had all. I mean, the stuff was close, uh, mm-hmm. but neither one of us got hit. Um, some goats got killed and then some villagers across who actually had seen the whole thing from across the way were certain that, that we would have been killed in that. Uh, but we both came out of it. At the end of it, I had to say <laughs> that I understood why Khalil was why, not. Yeah. Why he was, <laughs> I was not sending Shazi of... <laughs> on that walk uh, to go to school twice a day. But like that, that level of a lifestyle where you're just, yeah, like you're just so close to the edge. I mean, they're they're really they're living in a what is still a really wild place. They've been there for hundreds, thousands of years, but life is still pretty close to the edge. And I found it to be just a really thought-provoking place with some wonderful people that just kind of got with me i mean it Mm -hmm. it stuck with me
0: is that what the hook was like just realizing as you said how close they were to the edge like you're going there as a climber intentionally trying to put yourself on the edge to have these really meaningful experiences and the next thing you know you're on, on this walk with this guy and clearly create this really impactful vivid memory and that's their daily existence yeah Is that what started to develop your curiosity or your desire to go back there year after year?
1: So it certainly was a lot of the relationship connection Mm -hmm. that was forged through numerous similar things like that. There were a few other events, though, that solidified that connection with Pakistan. So that was the beginning of 2001. And that fall, I was coming back with a friend. We had American Alpine Club grant funding to do a small exploratory climbing trip up in Shimshal, which is in a different part of northern Pakistan. It's right up there by the Afghan-China border. And we flew out on September 11th. So we were in the air flying into Pakistan when the September 11th attacks happened in New York City. So we landed and actually Khalil came and picked us up from the airport. And Khalil said, I don't he, he had just come by a bus from northern Pakistan. He said, I don't know what happened, but I saw something on the TV, and I think it probably wasn't good. Uh, so <laughs> so we we need to figure out what happened and figure out what we're going to do. Understatement of the decade. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, we, uh, so we went to the Rawalpindi bus station, which is where all the buses leave. For those of us who've been climbing and visiting mm-hmm. in northern Pakistan, that's where the long haul buses go mm-hmm. if you're headed up to Gilgit and Baltistan. And depending on the time of the year, it's... A lot of people that transit through there, Pakistan in the past has had issues with militants going over to Kashmir to fight and people transit through that Rawalpindi bus station. So when we got to Rawalpindi, uh, we went with Khalil to one of the the little breakfast hotels, it, just all Pakistanis there, uh, and we're, we're just glued to the television and we just see these images of the of these big jets flying into the Twin Towers. Yeah. and. I think everyone was stunned and really didn't know what to expect from it. But as Halil pointed out, as we were going to some shops to just get a few things to get ready to leave the city, there were donation boxes. There actually was one that had Osama bin Laden's picture on it. It was clear that this was going to be a tense situation because even if <laughs> even yeah. if it hadn't directly yeah. involved Pakistan, right. uh, it was going to involve forces that were associated with Pakistan. And so Halil was like. We need to get somewhere safer, and somewhere safer is not in the city. So we headed out of the city. When we actually went up to Gilgit, so that's kind of north central Pakistan, and I had actually had a, a New Zealand and an American uh, eye doctor uh, friends that that ran an eye clinic up there, and we sh- we showed up, and they're they're great they're great guys, and they've been living in Pakistan for a while, and they were like. Don't yeah. worry, <laughs> we see stuff like this happen all the time. It'll blow over and you're totally fine. Go ahead and go up to the mountains, Like maybe don't take the full three months for the expedition like you're gonna do. They were so reassuring <laughs> and so, so confident. And yeah. so we, we go ahead and we're going up and we've got our shortwave radio and we're up in Shimshal, close to the Afghanistan Wakhan corridor. And we're listening to the shortwave radio every night and they play the BBC. The news just seems to be getting a little... Harrier and a little Harrier, And there, you know, there's starting to be some discussions about maybe the US is going to retaliate against entities in northern Afghanistan. And we're starting to think maybe we're a little bit closer than we want to be to where some stuff could go on. And I just don't really know what it's going to be like here in Pakistan. So we're getting a little more nervous, a little more nervous. And then Congress broadcast live the Congressional announcement that they were supporting President Bush to go ahead and invade. They were going to be going in through the north, and at that point, we're not that far away from that. And we're like, "That's it. This is not a good situation." All the local folks up there were like, "You should probably go." <laughs> and so, so we're like, "Okay, well, we'll we'll roll back to Gilgit, and we'll we'll talk to the other eye doctor friends we have got." And so we book it. Really long day to get out as soon as we can, and we get back to Gilgit, and. The compound is locked. (laughs) And there's a note on the door that said, stuff's getting hot. You should get out. Sorry. (laughs) And there was a name for somebody that we could contact to try to help facilitate us leaving. Now, there was a little bit of that, thanks guys, from our side, but we made it out just fine. The effect, though, of that was a reminder of the pretty fascinating social issues and political issues and issues about how we as a, as a whole human species interact with one another, how you deal with people who have differences, and it it really brought to the fore in my mind that Pakistan is facing a lot of these big issues that the whole world is having to address right now. So it ended up being, again, pretty thought-provoking and got me more and more interested in those sort of deeper interpersonal aspects that were coming up, so how Muslims and non-Muslims are interacting, power dynamics across uh, different cultures, political dynamics which are clearly affecting Pakistan. So I think those two experiences early on really were a pretty big hook for me. They took me in a different direction than expected. It was, I was, both of those trips was largely there for mountaineering reasons, but the end result was realizing that that was just one, an important piece, but one piece of what made this such a compelling place for me to, mm. to go back to. Because you
0: knew you wanted to go back, but you didn't know kind of how that was going to happen.
1: Yeah, so we came back a few years later. We're, again, in that far northeastern part of Pakistan. We had some funding for some latrine work and kind of environmental protection stuff. It was pretty small scale, but it was working with Khalil and other friends up in that area. It felt good, kind of like a... Peace Corps type experience for us. That was we had carved out those these couple of years to be over for that.
0: What organizations were you working with at this time? We we
1: were we were working through smaller Pakistani organizations. Mm-hmm. So not ones that would have been well known. Right. We happened to be in Skardu when the large earthquake happened. That was October 2005. That was kind of centered in Kashmir, both Indian Kashmir and Pakistani Kashmir.
0: Incidentally, yet another very intense experience in Pakistan. You
1: don't expect stuff like that. It happened early in the morning. Uh, We just felt the shaking. And so we ran outside of the house. And remember being outside and seeing these, they were cottonwood trees, and it felt like they were almost touching the ground. And, you know, there were some rock slides and things around there, and it went on for quite a while, and we thought, that seemed pretty big. I wonder (laughs) where it was centered. And we didn't have a ton of information at the beginning, but over the next day or two, we were able to hear on the radio just how big it was. So we actually reached out to some friends, both Pakistani and American friends, down in Islamabad, who said, we actually would really appreciate your help. being involved with some of the early medical triage and evacuations and we just need more people here. Mm-hmm. Like you're already in the country, you guys have language skills, you've got cultural skills, you have the connections, we would really like you to come down. Yeah. So we ended up flying down to Islamabad and then being part of a, a team over that first month that was doing evacuations with with the government of Pakistan and the, the Pakistani army. So they would fly us to different areas to do stabilization, triage, and help facilitate helicopter evacuations and from remote affected areas.
0: And tell me about your level of medical training at this point.
1: Uh, so at that point, I was just an EMT, and it was eye-opening to see how helpful it would be to have more medical skills i think that was our first real thought that Mm -hmm. if we want to keep doing more of this kind of work we need more medical training it was it was a pretty interesting experience because at that point i had a decent amount of more formal reading and knowledge about pakistan Mm -hmm. and south asia under my belt um had Spent a bit of time already in the country language-wise was, was getting pretty comfortable. But I had sort of divided Pakistan into a good Pakistan and a bad Pakistan. And the good Pakistan, Baltis, most Baltis are, are Shia. So those are kind of the circles that I was running in and felt really comfortable with that. I felt like, you know, you know, Pakistan overall is a very, it's a strong hospitality culture and felt very comfortable there. Did not feel threatened, did not feel out of place, and really did feel welcomed. I had had, though, a few uncomfortable experiences with the Pashtun ethnic group within Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Pashtun's tend to be a little more centered along the western part of Pakistan, kind of along the Afghanistan border. They're also generally coming from more Sunni backgrounds. And a lot of the Baltis were like, you know what? We don't really like these Pashtuns. And we don't, you know, they're they're all Talaman supporters, they're not good people. And I I think I had absorbed a little bit of that narrative. So I had felt like in these Shia areas up north and Ismaili areas up north, like I'm comfortable. This is the the good part of Pakistan. But would never be welcome, would never be interested to go to some of these other parts of Pakistan like especially in the Pashtun areas. And where did we find ourselves getting flown with yeah. the Pakistan military? It was in very traditional, strong Pashtun area. It was in but at that time was the Northwest Frontier Province. It's since been renamed. And it was about 10 to 15 miles east of where Malala Yousafzai was shot in the head a few years ago. It's a pretty traditional Pashtun area. And to my surprise, the communities that we were working in and the individuals that we were working with were nothing like my preconceived perceptions had been. They really, were wonderful individuals who, on so many levels, were just like me and just like my wife. Um, the same goals, the same individual quirks, the same sense of humor, the same desires for their families to be having a good, stable, rewarding life possible for their children. Like It was it was very comfortable and very easy to, to relate to these people that I really before had kind of walled off yeah. as being... Um, people who would never be interested in me or welcoming to me that I'd never have anything to offer or to be able to share with.
0: I have two questions for you on that regard. How much do you think that warmth you felt for them was because you were coming to provide a service or to help?
1: I think there was there was definitely a component of it uh, yeah. because I, I was not seeking much from them other mm-hmm. than to try to be helpful in what was clearly a pretty overwhelming and pretty mm-hmm. damaging situation. I mean, I'm not a missionary. That's not at all me. Yeah. And so I think when people realized that I actually was approaching this with a fundamental belief that we are equals, I'm really curious in your culture and your religious background, which is very different than right. mine, but it was a pretty comfortable relationship to build upon. I think it definitely helped that we were there to be useful. The medical skills have a lot of cachet. I remember working alongside public health professionals, and the, a lot of these were very well-trained Pakistani public health professionals. They had these great ideas, and they just didn't get buy-in from the communities where they were working because there was nothing immediate and tangible to offer. And that was in contrast to a lot of the medical resources that people could provide. And that was a pretty key early insight of working in challenging contested environments is that it helps to have something really practical yeah. to offer. And medicine for us, it was pretty clear, was a, a pretty practical thing. The
0: other question, or maybe just a comment, is do you think that collective cooperation that is born out of a tragedy like that help break down some barriers for you as well? So we see that in our own country, right? I mean, mm-hmm. look about what happened amongst different socioeconomic classes at in 2011, you know, with the Twin Towers, and it really it unified people in a way through tragedy as other catastrophes often unify and break down other barriers that would otherwise be there. Um, do you feel like that that may have been part of it too that that helped you make that connection with them?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. It it yeah. certainly is a uh, these sort of disruptive events yeah. are are a chance for new opportunities to come. Uh, as well as a chance for a reset. So I think it it can either be really positive, and in this case, I think it was very positive. I think at times it can be negative. You know, it it was such a disruptive period in Pakistan at the time. And geopolitically, the area was hot during those years. And I know subsequently there have been a lot of accusations, some of them I think probably somewhat founded on intelligence work and CIA agents getting brought into the country at the time. So I think you're exactly right that these disruptive events create new space. And I would like to think that we can take advantage of that to make that new space a positive, yeah. helpful space. I think
0: that's a great per- pearl, though, is to actually reframe these disruptive events as you label them or these tragedies really as a, a reset opportunity or a way to, to break down a barrier and to move forward with something new and an opportunity to, to change your own perspective about the people but also yeah. an opportunity to help and improve relations from there on out yeah. uh, because it creates this need. It creates an arena where people can unify over yes we have this problem, we have a shared problem here and and we want to help you with that yeah. you know? and I think that's a pretty it's a powerful moment I'm sure for, for both sides on that time.
1: Yeah you know I mean one of the, one of the other things that comes up is that uh, at, at this point we are so global. Pakistan yeah. is is not just it's a nice. like a monolithic yeah. country that is that is in any way backwards like every country they have issues but there are tons of well educated bright liberal really open minded pakistanis that are dispersed throughout the world many of whom are just coming and going from pakistan to other major major places in the world and it was, it was very exciting to see that diaspora um, coming back to help out as well. And so one of the things that did stick out to me was that, you know, at this point, it's not white Westerners coming in to work with less well-off Pakistani communities. I mean, this is it's much it's getting to be much more of we're all just global participants here. This is about respect. Yes, we have small differences in terms of opportunities, but fundamentally we're, we're on equal footing at this point. So it's much more collaborative. If I look at my network now of people mm-hmm. that I work with in Pakistan, I mean, it's, it's involving people who are entirely my peers with skills that far exceed my skills on many specialties that they have. And it's really pretty exciting to see that it, it is much more collaborative and it is much more about partnerships and much less about the old approach of how these kind of interactions have, have happened. Speaking of partnerships, I,
0: I kind of want to move on a little bit and when your next projects there, which seemed to be a very appropriate and insightful meshing of, of some of your passions. And that was the development of KerpaCare, um, which kind of combined your passion for what originally brought you to that area, you know, the, the excitement of the exploration and the climbing, but also a service mission. Maybe you can highlight a little bit about KerpaCare and how you identified this need yeah. and how you decided to try to contribute to that
1: need. Yeah, sure. So so Jesse, my wife and I ended up we worked for a year for Save the Children after the post post earthquake uh, stuff going on and that was in a in a Pashtun area. And then we were asked if we would be willing to help get this new organization called Corpa Care up and off the ground in Skardu. So Skardu is again is in the Balti area up in the Karakoram. And this was an organization it was initially some wonderful support from a Canadian professor, Dr. Ken McDonald, out of the University of Toronto, as well as Gulam Parvi, who had been involved with the Central Asia Institute. This was a lot about seeing how the working conditions and the opportunities for the really large portering community in Baltistan could be improved when i look back at the pictures of the porters from the from the 60s and 70s i mean it's even at that point it's pretty it's clear that it, it has been a pretty marginalized community within pakistan that you know they live in a rough area and have had have had a lot of challenges uh, there was still a lot of striking even in the early 2000s these foreign expeditions would employ hundreds of balti porters and the porters and the Sirdars would you know, they'd go with them out for a couple of days. And at that point, they would have a lot of leverage and they could, they could strike and say, you know, we're not going to continue unless you give us more money or right. more resources, or they actually would have legitimate concerns that were not being met. Yeah. Um, and they would say, we just, we're not going to go on. Must uh, have learned something from all the French and Italian yeah, right, climbers yeah. <laughs> that coming out there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the effect was that Pakistan was still seen as having wonderful mountains, like definitely a climber's country. Um, but as, not an enjoyable place to climb um, because oh, of
0: because of that dynamic. because of the, the unreliability yeah. of the support yeah, yeah.
1: and there was yeah. a lot there was a lot of lack of trust. and I remember people frequently during those years saying you know it's it's such a beautiful country, but I go to Nepal and I have this wonderful Buddhist culture that's very welcoming and open uh, to me as a westerner and the people are really friendly and there's alcohol and like it's like it's comfortable and rewarding. And why would I choose to go to a place that is, Seems at least on the surface much less friendly with all of these labor issues, where it's a it's a real hump to get up to some of yeah. these base camps, and the result was that a lot of people just w- didn't want to go to Pakistan, despite the the mountains being so beautiful. In that dynamic, a lot of Balti porters realized we're this is I mean this is our livelihood. We don't have any other options. We grow barley. We've got apricots, uh, but we just we're very dependent on this income stream from visitors and we're just shooting ourselves in the foot here and beyond that there was a lot there were a lot of preventable fatalities frostbite a lot of injuries that were pretty devastating to these families that had their loved ones injured working as porters or or guides or things. So there was a strong desire to try to tackle this issue from more of a labor relations perspective, to make sure that these large portering communities, cause there, there's like 9,000 porters working in Baltistan. It's a sizable proportion of all of the men in Baltistan that work in this industry. And to make sure that their needs were being met so that when they had legitimate grievances, those grievances were addressed so that this was a more fair and equitable profession that respected their dignity didn't just treat them like animals and at the same time helped people understand there are certain behaviors that you should not be doing this exploitative striking really is not helping anybody serving Yeah. yeah and it's and it's hurting you know a lot of a lot of the other community right uh and so this the organization was started curb care was started to help deal with the labor relations issues as well as to impart more first aid training, wilderness medicine training, um, environmental protection stuff, and to help give porters a voice so that they would have a seat at the table on a lot of these decisions that were affecting them. And it was great. The organization got started in 2006, 2007, and it really has done a lot of very good stuff.
0: Yeah, why don't you highlight some of what you've done so far there?
1: Yeah, so it's a, I mean, it is a Pakistani-run organization. Mm. It's I have given them a little bit of background support at times, but it's their organization, it's not my organization. And same thing with Ken McDonald. He was very helpful early on, but it quickly got handed over. So it's it's 100% Pakistani at this point. And they have been adept at navigating the challenging work environment there. So they have done a very good job about helping porters be politically engaged. They organized, uh, they registered and organized porters throughout the the main valleys in Baltistan, uh, so that people would be documented, that they're engaged in this work. It makes it easier for them to get insurance claims if somebody dies while portering yeah. or has an injury while portering. So that's been a success of the registration. They also, through the registration, were able to pinpoint and deal with the striking. So within probably three years of starting the organization, they managed to get the striking stopped. And the way they got it stopped was by making sure that they were addressing the legitimate needs that Porter's had. And then they were able to convince the very, very small number, uh, probably less than 10 people, that were trying to take advantage of the system that this was hurting everybody. And they effectively have ended that practice, which they've if, essentially mediated. Yeah. They listened. Yeah, they, did. they wrote yeah. down. They took notes. They did. Yeah. So in, in terms of like yeah. conflict management right. in practice, uh, that's yeah. been a big part of what the organization has done.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: they still will mediate disputes that are going on on the Baltoro. They'll often get called by the police or by the government to step in when there's a when there's a problem between foreign groups and local porters. They are usually present at the discussions early in the year that's setting porter wages and establishing the rules that govern what porters are provided. They're involved with monitoring to make sure that those like that the, the flower doesn't have any insects in it. And because this is the rations and provisions that people are provided to make sure that it actually is adequate to make sure that people are being given the basic safety equipment that they need, sunglasses and shoes and so forth. But increasingly, they also are working on the personal responsibility side. So they work very strongly with the porters to make sure that people aren't just taking that provision money and refusing to buy sunglasses or refusing to buy adequate footwear and instead using the money for other reasons, and really pushing this idea that it's this is a partnership um, and there, there are expectations on both sides. And I've got to say, I've been really impressed. They do a very good job of mediating these disputes and facilitating these challenging uh, discussions, and it is a positive step forward in making this a field that is much more respectful. That acknowledges people's dignity, and that helps people feel proud to be working in in, in this the field. Industry, yeah, right.
0: For the listeners that are intrigued and interested about this, is there a place to get more information about Care or potentially support their work?
1: Yeah, there is. So Care does have a website, and then they networked very strongly. So they are working with a number of other larger Pakistani organizations at this point to really magnify their their impact. So they are doing cleanup expeditions fairly frequently, they're doing a lot more with training including expanding to be bringing in women um, and -hmm. and, uh, sort of older school kids to be engaging in these activities in a way that helps increase the standard of mountaineering skill and climbing skill Mm -hmm. in Pakistan so that it's no longer the expert foreign climbers coming with the very strong but poorly trained Pakistani climbers but instead trying to build this new generation of Pakistani climbers so yeah. that they actually are climbing at the same standard with the same level of skills. So they have quite a few ongoing projects, yeah. and we can we can post some links yeah. uh, for how to get involved with them.
0: And also just thinking ahead, we were talking about meeting up and speaking with Pete Athens later on and partnering with other organizations that have some similar mirroring goals, like with the Klumbu Climbing Center yeah. and partnering to send some of – um, the porters to go there for training and learn technical skills. Right?
1: Yeah, 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 no. The the Kumbu Climbing School has been uh, very generous. We've we've had several people from Corporate Care go yeah. over to attend those trainings, and there's there's definitely there's a desire. I mean, I, I I've got a list of different projects uh, that people there want to see move forward. Yeah, um, that are you know there are opportunities for other foreign climbers who are going on their own expeditions on the Baltoro or other places to uh, pretty you know, pretty easily link in to this existing network. Um, and even if it's just a week at the beginning, uh, doing some stuff with some sport climbing or trad climbing right. actually close to Scardew, or if it's porting folks on some of their training expeditions, of which there's a pretty large cohort of young Baltis that are starting to do their right. own independent expeditions. There are a lot of opportunities out there. Right. And they, it, they are looking for people who care Right. And want to engage sort of as equals in this way as uh a chance for it to be pretty rewarding for both right, sides. Right. So any of you climbers out there, if you missed that, that was kind of a call to action. Yeah, there are there are
0: opportunities. <laughs> there are opportunities. So uh obviously if you if you're interested, you can go to our, our website at uh org and we'll we'll put up a link uh to some of these references Paul's uh, has spoken about and uh, try to connect you with some opportunities if you're interested. Yeah. Um that would be fantastic. Um, well, just being respectful of your time, Paul, because I know you got another meeting and you have the opportunity to work in the ER tonight. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess what what excites you now? I mean, looking ahead, it's, it's been an interesting life path for you and, and for me. And I, and I look at my own and I just so many things that excited me before have changed. And so many new projects have come and gone that I'm excited about. And, and there are new things ahead that... You know, they're on my five-year yeah, wish sure. list. Uh, what, sure. What's exciting you now? You're nearing the end of your training and residency. Um, what do you think's next for you?
1: Yeah. So I mean, the one thing I didn't mention is that uh, during these years, especially after working in that plush area, the, it was a setting of some pretty – it's definitely a gun culture there. Uh, so it's, it's well-armed, um, and people do tend to be – a little hot when uh, interacting with with one another. So it was a chance to see w- what it was like to work in a setting of violent conflict. The violent conflict wasn't geared towards me, uh, but it was a there was there was a lot of shootings and other things going on within and between the communities. And then also in the workplace that I was in, uh, so working with Save the Children, that was a that was a big organization. We were two two or three foreigners and two hundred and fifty Pakistani co-workers it had a lot of conflict, just workplace conflict. And so after those years in Pakistan, I did go back and do a graduate degree in conflict management. Um, And sort of my specialization at this point is uh, conflict and health. So both on an international side, kind of how healthcare workers can be effective working in settings of violent conflict, as well as working on conflict, like how to make our other health and public health interventions be a positive, force for making that conflict actually less devastating so there's been that side which I will continue to be working on especially on the as we talked about this morning you know at this point climate change is is like such a big issue for our generation mm-hmm. and as I think we can all see with a changing climate comes a lot of pressures on people living in certain areas, and it's not—it's not it's and
0: displacing not, people from yeah.
1: Their homes, so, yes. so it's a you know, it's a, it's a strong driver of right. migration, and with forced or perceived forced migration, um, that cl- very clearly feeds into conflict. And so this this interface between climate change, migration, and conflict is an area that uh, I'd like to be doing more with. The other, the other side of work that I do right now, like at the University of Washington, is I do a lot of teaching um, on conflict management. Uh, and it has tended to be a little more on the Sort of clinical side, yeah, like workplace a workplace environment. I work yeah. with, yeah, I work with, work with residents, work with medical students, work with other faculty. Stubborn um, doctors like ourselves. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been, and that's been good. Um, one of the things is that a lot of the core skills—the mediation, the facilitation, the handling these difficult conversations, the uh, conflict analysis—it. Force yeah. yeah, it uh, carries over um, mm-hmm. and applies just as strongly to people who are working in the international mm-hmm. settings of violent conflict. Um, so I'd like to see more of that opportunity. Pakistan, of course, is a, is also sort of at the epicenter. Um, there's a lot of stressors on Pakistan in terms of how it's uh, dealing with climate change, um, and that includes even up in these communities, not, not just down in the big cities. Um, so you know, Pakistan remains a focus for that, but yeah. also, uh, you know, in, in a lot of other areas, the this issue of conflict and health is yeah. is is pretty ripe. Well, it's an it's an
0: inspiring goal, and and I think an arena ripe with opportunity, and certainly it excited me quite a bit for us to talk about it yeah. a bit this morning. So. Um, Stay tuned. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully Paul and I can can do do something about this. Um, I guess just in closing and and looking back, Paul, and thinking about some of your preconceived notions that you talked about and the challenges and breaking down some of your biases, there's still a lot to be done. And I think, and you've done so much so well and your story has been so inspiring, but it's also, I look back at my life and I'm like, man, I wish I had I wish I had known this or I had been a little bit easier on myself if I had just mm-hmm. known this one thing that I kind of learned the hard way. Or maybe another way to think about it is if there's someone else out there who's inspired by your story and has an idea of something they'd like to do to give back, um, what would be something that you would wish for them to to know about or to expect or to... Not be so critical of themselves about. I mean, is there something you think that you did before that you took yourself too seriously, yeah. or you, you know, oh gosh, this was definitely a mistake that I did that I wish I could have learned from?
1: I, you know, later. I think I, one one of the things that that has uh, has surprised me is that people that work on development stuff and humanitarian stuff, and uh, you know, for these for these big organizations, they they are experts. I mean, they they it's important to have a grounding. Um, or to be working with people that have some uh, conceptual grounding, so that we know there are fewer unexpected consequences of our of our actions. Um, but at the same time, you know, this stuff always it always looks so professional and so perfect from the outside. When we when we look at the brochures, like when I when I look at organizations that that work in these hard situations, it seems like they've got it together. And I think, how do I have anything to offer there? Like I don't have it together nearly as much mm-hmm. as they do. And I. Think I think the thing that has surprised me is having then been behind some of these glossy curtains is that they don't have it together anymore, yeah, anymore I, I than I have don't. it together. Right. And so much of it is about right. connections. There, there are all these folks who have invested really strongly in these relationships, and they are these just incredible resources of knowing uh, like all these opportunities and all these needs, and yet they often don't have anyone that they can reach out to. To help get support for filling some of those needs, so I think this idea that you're that you're working on right now of trying to connect people that do have these strong connections in these places and have opportunities and just need more partners yeah. to be working on it is a tremendous resource for both sides. Because yeah, right. even if it seems like from the outside, you know, maybe I don't think I have enough to offer on this particular issue even if i'm interested i think the reality is your interest may be enough it may be enough so much of things at this point is people bringing different specialties and different skills for a multidisciplinary approach people really do have a lot to offer and so my final word of encouragement would be if any of the things that we talked about today if they're of interest to people please move forward with it and try to like reach out to some of these other folks that do have a lot of connections on the ground because it can be really valuable for both sides yeah
0: that's uh, a great summary and uh, excellent point. Well, cool, Paul. Good to hang out with you today. Thanks for hanging out in the, the yep. camper. Um, pretty nice here today. You got a good recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Catch you next time. Well, thank you for listening to episode two of the Adventure Activist podcast. That probably won't be the last we hear from Paul as he and I look to collaborate in the coming months on some projects focusing on the impact of climate change on human health. So stay tuned. To learn more about our group and what we do, go to theadventureactivist.org. Go to the podcast tab to find more info about Paul and photos from his work in Pakistan. You can also find us on Instagram at The Adventure Activist. Feel free to leave comments or questions about anything you've heard or sparks your interest here on the podcast. Our support comes from, well, still not really anyone, but we hope you. If this episode inspired and added value to your life and passions, please consider making a donation. Even a dollar an episode would be incredible. Go to our website or find us on patreon.com to donate per episode. If nothing else, follow us for future episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you find podcasts. Give us a good review. Share with your friends. Your support means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring.